surrender all. The call of all who come to Christ, or the call of Christ for all who come to Him, is that you give your life to Him. If any man would be his, my disciple, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Coming to Christ is surrendering all to Him, and then walking in Christ is continually yielding and surrendering our all to Him. Have you ever been in a place and you just weren't sure what the expectations were? Have you ever been hired for a job or asked to do something and not given any instructions? A lot of times that's the way it works. How, how joyful is it just to be told that there is an expectation at the end, but no instructions along the way? It can be extremely, extremely frustrating. As a matter of fact, it is counterproductive. Fortunately, we have the Word of God. The God has given to us as believers that very clearly communicates what it means to be His child, the provision He has made for us, how He saved us, how He extends grace to us, washes us, forgives us, cleanses us, and make us, makes us His. And yet He also gives us a job. He gives us expectations. We are like soldiers in His army, is one Bible illustration. We are members of his body as the church christ is the head and we respond to his guiding and leading and christianity a call to christ is always a call to serve when you surrender all romans 6 says then no longer do you stand up and present your body your members as instruments for sin or unrighteousness now rather every morning you report for duty or every afternoon or every evening. Father, I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. My very body has been bought with a price. My eternity is sealed in God. I'm not mine anymore. I am yours. Asusordenes. Uh, one of the phrases that we learned down in South Texas was a phrase that simply says, uh, at your service. Asusordenes. At your service. At your service. At your service. Now, how many times do we actually approach God in that mindset? Because a lot of times... Christianity is presented from the pulpit, guilty of this. Christianity is presented from the pulpit and from uh, podcasts and from books and studies all about me. That Christ came because he loved me, and that's true. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. That Christ, uh, Christianity is I need to be equipped so that I can experience the peace that passes understanding, and that's true. Or, so that I can experience the strength to endure in difficult times, and that's true. But... It's all about me receiving and receiving and receiving. And even when we come to church in, on Sunday mornings, we'll sit in a classroom to receive, or we will sit in a sanctuary to receive. And it's about what I'm getting from God, how God is equipping my life, how I can be a better husband, how I can be a better father, how I can be a better wife or mother or child, how uh, honoring my father and my mother, how I can be a better person in the workplace, how I can be a better witness, a testimony, how I can do this and I can do that. And it's all about me receiving, me receiving, me receiving. And yet, Christianity is so much more than that. I have heard it said, and I believe it is true to a great extent, that Christianity is a spectator sport for a large portion of North American Christianity. As a matter of fact, isn't that why we, why we call preachers? So they can do the work of ministry? Isn't that why we have uh, deacons that we select so that they can serve God and then serve us? Serve God by serving us? Hey, isn't, that, isn't that what uh, Christianity is about? We become a consumer mindset that uh, 
uh, just like you guys shop. Y'all like to shop. I saw a guy the other day. He said, my wife left me. And I said, I'm so sad. He said, don't worry. She just went to Target. But uh, I have no idea when she's coming home. Because when she goes to Target, they take really good care of her there. And they have all these offerings, and she likes to shop, and there's all this stuff that, that is all about us, and she's not selfish. She thinks of us, and she thinks of me, and she thinks of the kids. But, buddy, I can tell you that I'm getting my exercise today when she pulls up. He said, I'm just glad she took the car and not the truck. Because she, she tends to fill whatever she's driving to capacity when she goes. And frankly, that becomes a mindset that becomes built into us, fed into us, establishing us, even when it comes to church, how we select the church that we participate in, that we're a part of. But even as Christians, we tend to view Christianity as about me, what God has done for me, and God has done for you. Don't misunderstand me. But you need to understand that the call to Christ is a call to serve. When Jesus called his first disciples, he said, come, follow me. And I will make sure you know everything you need to know to live a fulfilled life. Is that what he said? No. Come, follow me, and I will make sure that you can deal with the difficulties of life. I will make sure that you experience joy. I will make sure all of these things. You come, I will make sure you have a place in eternity. Come, follow me, and I will make sure those things are true. Is that what Jesus said to Peter, James, and John when he called them off the boat? No. What did he say? Come follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. You fish for a living. This is your vocation. Get that. This is your vocation. You fish. You work for a living. This is your vocation. I'm going to change your vocation. I'm going to change your vocation. You now have a new vocation. Rather than fishing for fish, you get to fish for the hearts, minds, the souls of men. Isn't that great? And so, as he called them, he calls us. And we are to be fishers of men. We've been going through this whole series here. I hope you've been following along. We worship authentically. We worship authentically as a people. Our highest value is to know God and to love Him, to seek Him, to express an adoration to Him, and then to ex- uh, live out a life of service that demonstrates our, our love for Him. You remember that? And then from worship, how do we know who to worship? How do we know how we're to worship? How are we to know how to live? We proclaim truth. God has given us instructions. It's not like showing up for a job. And being given no instructions or no equipping or no tool, God has given us instructions in His Word. He's given us revelation of Himself in His Word. He's given us revelation about our own hearts and our own concerns and our own desires. And He's given us a Word that is living and active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It will perform the surgery that we need to be fully healthy, right? But also that we need to be fully of service. To have the focus where it needs to be. And so while we worship God authentically, we proclaim the truth of God as revealed in His Word. But we need to make sure we're not doing this in the flesh. And so we pray reliantly. 
We know that unless the Lord builds the house, those labor in, in vain that build it. We know that the work that lasts for eternity is work that's done by the power of God, through the people of God, yielded to the Spirit of God, walking in step with God. It's a lot of words. We get that. Prayer reliantly. Prayer means God it, it broadens our vision. He expands our ambition for His kingdom. Prayer takes the ability to do something off of us and puts it on God. What can I do? Very little. What can God do? Nothing is impossible with Him. Amen? You with me? Don't. This isn't just a series of lessons and there'll be an exam at the end. I want you to understand this. This is life. This is what it means to be a child of God, being in love with God, being devoted to His Word and feeding off of His Word and communing with Him, depending upon Him as He expands our vision, as we trust Him to accomplish the things He desires to accomplish in us and through us. We're able to rest in Him. So what does He call us to do? That's how we relate to God. What does He call us to do? He calls us to love people. He calls us to love all people. He calls us to love unconditionally he calls us to love with the love that he has he wants us to get his vision for how he looks at people so that we don't look at people the way we were raised to look at people we look at people the way he looks at people and if you struggle with that or if you're curious what we mean by that i'm not going to re-preach that sermon but it's one we could preach once a month for eternity go back and look at last week's sermon go back and listen to it we need to understand what it means to embrace not tolerate Hey, not tolerate, but embrace people Christ died for. Amen? Buddy, that'll get you back up. That's hard to do. You know how you can do it? Through the power of Christ. By recognizing the truth of it in His Word. By loving Him enough to yield to Him. And by praying and communing with Him. And seeing Him do things in you and through you that you can't do by yourself. It's amazing what God can do. Can you teach an old dog new tricks? You ever tried? Is it easy to teach an old dog new tricks? And I'm not calling y'all dogs, okay? Don't misunderstand. But when you have been habituated, when you have been trained, when you have been taught, when your culture says something and the TV says something and you see it lived out on the sitcoms and the movies that you watch, when you're parents and you were raised this way and this has been the exposure of your life god can change your mind god can radically change your mind and how you perceive people so we love people now when we love people what does that mean that we do when we love god right and we worship him and we love people what do we do you're very good very good. This is this is a quiz. I, I, I haven't highlighted any pictures on these, but Tim hates this so bad. I can't help. I, I can't can't help but bring this up. No, we we make this. I'm sorry, buddy. We in case you're wondering, in case you're wondering, this is Oregon. All right, we didn't we didn't want to didn't want to miss anybody here. But uh, make disciples. We make disciples. Is that a big deal? Yeah, it's a big deal. As a church, we 
have a system or we are developing or we are in refining and enhancing a system for what it means to make disciples. There should be a path, a very clear path to discipleship. Right now, what we're telling people is there are three things that characterize a growing disciple. There are three things that typically characterize a growing disciple. The first is corporate worship. We are the body of Christ. We are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We come together as the people of God to sit at the feet of God, to listen to the word of God, and then we leave to be on mission for God. Amen? The people of God corporately worship. Second is, you need to be in some sort of small group. Discipleship happens best in small group. Instruction, application, you need to sit somewhere where you're not side by side, but you're kind of facing each other, either around the table. Uh, I I used to say knee to knee, but I was called out on that, so I'm not going to say sit knee to knee with somebody. But I want to say sit facing one another, where you can talk and discuss, and you can pray, and you can examine the Scriptures, and kind of share life together. Coffee plays a big role in that in my life. But then there's also another component where you get up. You're not sitting in a row, and you're not sitting in a circle, but you get up, you roll your sleeves up, and you do something. You serve in a ministry that connects people with the truth of God's Word. So worship plus two. Worship plus a small group where you're fed and a ministry where you're able to express the goodness and the kindness of God as you serve God by serving others that the world may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5.16. Amen? Pretty clear, right? Hadn't even got to the sermon yet. You guys ready? Jesus told the disciples... He's just been crucified. He laid in the tomb. He was resurrected. He appeared to the disciples. And he told those first disciples that he saw. He said, you get my men. You get my followers. You get my disciples. The whole crowd of them. As many of them as have been following me. And you bring them up to the hill country of Galilee. And I will meet them there. And they gathered probably as many as 500 people. And here comes Jesus. And Jesus now resurrected approaches, and some of them doubted. But Jesus begins to speak to them, and I believe that when he began to speak, their doubts faded away, and they just dropped. And Jesus said to them, hey, listen, all authority, exousia, responsibility, power, the ability to say something, see something, make it happen. The the right to say this and command this to you, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, and so now I have a task for you. As you're going... As you're going, the go there is not imperative, it's participle. While you're going to your work, and while you're going to your job, and while you're going to the place that I will lead you, and while you're going to the place that I will send you, he did call them disciples and apostles. Disciples follow, and apostles are sent. While you're going, make disciples. Make disciples. I will make you fishers of men. Remember the first call? Here's a job for you. You need to make disciples. What does that encompass? It encompasses two massive components. Baptizing them in the name. Make disciples of whom, first of all? All nations. Every ethna, every ethnicity, every language group, every culture group, every, every group, tribe, every country. Make disciples of the world, including the people who live next door and the people who live on the other side of the tracks. Make disciples of all people. How? By presenting the gospel to them. By seeing them respond to the gospel as the Holy Spirit draws them and quickens them and brings them to life. Make disciples. How? By baptizing them, which is a demonstration of a changed life. By baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then you say, good job, you're going to heaven now. Your ticket's punched. Find a church to join. I'll see you later. Is that, is that what comes next? 
No, no. What comes next? Well, then you get to spend time with them, teaching them. It's the didache. It's teaching. It's instruction. Teaching them to do what? Teaching them to, do out a word, observe, obey, follow. The things that you have learned, teach them to observe, to know, to understand, to embrace, and to apply all that I have commanded you. And, and, and behold, lo, I'm, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There, there is, I'm going to give you the power to do this, but don't miss the call. It is the gospel presentation, seeing lives change, brought to life by God, and then embracing those lives and investing your life in them. And the application that I have for us today, because I don't want any of us to miss this, is that it's your job. We don't get to say this is a pastor's job or this is an associate's job or this is a minister's job or this is just a parent's job or this is a... We're, we're farming this job out. If you are here today and you are a follower of Christ, you have been raised to walk in newness of life. You have been forgiven of your sins. Your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. There is a place in heaven reserved and preserved for you. And you have experienced the joy of forgiveness. You've experienced the excitement of seeing God work in your life. You've had those experiences where you opened the Word of God and there was a communing where God spoke to you and you listened and you responded in obedience and there was forgiveness or there was empowering or there was a change. You have been blessed by God in order that you may be equipped to make disciples by teaching, by instructing, by modeling, by teaching them to observe whatsoever things Jesus has commanded us. Here's the point. Here is the point. It's your job. You need to embrace. This is point one on your outline if you're taking notes. You need to embrace your role as one who makes disciples. Now, you may not like the terminology. I've heard people say, oh, we need to stop using the word disciple. It's an antiquated word. It's a biblical word. It's not received by other people. Frankly, I'm going to use it because the Bible uses it. I'm going to use it because it best conveys, I think, with clarity, what it means for us to be... We, what is a disciple? He's a listener, a learner, and a follower. A disciple is a learner and a follower. And as we learn and as we follow, making disciples means we take those along with us who are also learners and followers. What I don't want you to do is to give, to, to relinquish that role. I don't want you to say, all right, that's the church's job as an institution. All right, that's somebody else's job. I want you to embrace it and recognize, as a believer, your mandate is to make disciples. So we're talking about very personal application to this truth. Are you, are you with me? Yeah, okay, good. So what it means to make disciples is to invest our lives in the life of others in order that 
we and they will become more like Christ. To invest our lives in the lives of others that we may become more like Christ. We saw that in the New Testament church. When Jesus called these disciples to Galilee, they took the mission through the power of prayer, through listening to the Word of God. As they devoted their lives to God, they preached and 3,000 were saved the first day. And then they began to meet. And everybody took the role of sharing in what it meant to be discipleship. James S. Stewart, a pastor in Scotland, said the real problem of Christianity is not atheism. It's not the external enemies that we face. It's not skepticisms from those who don't know Christ. But the real problem of Christianity is the non-witnessing, non-productive Christian trying to smuggle his own soul into heaven all alone. We get too individualistic and we forget the task that he has given to us. So what I want us to do, what the Bible commands that we do is to intentionally invest in another person's life with the aim of seeing them become increasingly devoted Followers of Christ. To intentionally invest our lives in the life of another to see them increasingly become devoted followers of Christ. So, are we doing that? Here's a quick question. Here's a diagnostic, which irritated me when I first (laughs) came across. Here's a diagnostic. As you were coming to church this morning, did you think about anybody beyond yourself or your immediate family? As you come to a class or a small group, are you thinking about anybody beyond yourself or your immediate family? Beyond the physical needs that are shared on prayer request lists, when you pray for communion with God, are you praying for anybody beyond yourself or your immediate family? Don't misunderstand. You should pray for yourself. It starts there. And you should certainly pray for your immediate family. My goodness, how not? There's no question, but that's the truth. But the problem is when we just me and just my immediate family, we've lost the vision that God has for us that through you, through you, you can impact a whole generation with the gospel. You can create generations that follow Christ. This first church exploded in Jerusalem. Now we think Jerusalem, they were all good, devout Jewish people. And most of the first Christians were, but they were from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Some of them were just had temporarily met there for a time for the Passover. But when this happened, they stayed until a period of time. Some of them moved their families there until a period of time where there became persecution. And it's called the Diaspora, the second Diaspora. Uh, the Christian diaspora, and they went everywhere. And it was not some sort of formal, institutional, strategic plan for globalization of the gospel. It was Christians going to live in Antioch because they were safe in Antioch. And sharing with their co-workers, and sharing with their neighbors, and sharing with their friends the gospel, and then uniting them and teaching them all that they had learned at the feet of the apostles. Isn't that amazing? In just a very few short years, in just a very few short years, when, when Paul, is it Acts 17, when, when Paul came to a certain town, they said, oh my goodness, you're one of those guys who have turned the world upside down. They had made such an impact, known as people of the way, that the government, two countries over, knew them and knew who they were. 
And it was not the result of a few or an organized structure. It was a result of you and me. It was a result of the believer, the regular believer, the common believer, accepting and embracing the role that he had of discipleship. And so here's the question. Are you intentionally investing in another person's life with the aim of, of, them, of seeing them become increasingly devoted followers of Christ? Are you intentionally investing in somebody's life it may be a coworker. it may be a friend, it may be a student. Are you investing in someone's life with the express goal and desire of seeing them become a more fully, an increasingly devoted follower of Christ? And there are formal structures for this. If I have time, we'll get to that. There are informal structures for this. But can I just, just start with this? We know what this is. We know what it looks like. We do this all the time. It's in our culture. It's pervasive in our culture. We see what discipleship looks like. And yet when it comes to Christ, we largely just overlook it or dismiss it or don't engage in it. I was just thinking, we were in Sunday school class this morning. I looked around the room. We have a college professor, teacher. We have a a coach. Uh, We have an employee. We have a, a, a minister who works a secular job. And, and teaches the Bible to people and invests Scripture in their life. We did, how many of you have an apprentice that you've trained, trained on a job? Or how many of you have been an apprentice on a job? Do we do apprenticeships anymore? How did you learn to fix a loom? If you don't know how to fix a loom, I don't know. How did you learn to fix a small engine? How did you learn to write a paper? How, how did you learn to read a book? somebody sat down with you and said, here's something you need to know. How'd you learn to be healthy, to eat well, have a diet, nutrition? How did you learn to run a business and manage a crew and a group of people and set a schedule? How did you learn classroom management? Somebody equipped you for the task. Somebody said, look, here's your class. Here's your room. Here's your goal. Here's your run. Here's, your, here's, your, here's how you play football. This is what linemen do. This is what a running back does. This is what a quarterback's supposed to do. Somebody sat down with you and talked you through, and they gave you, first of all, information. Yes? Now, if this is a task, if you're, if you're a blue-collar, if this is a hands-on task, or if you're a white-collar professional and you get to put this in, 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 in practice as an employee or as a manager or as an owner of a business, then, then you get to say, now, here's not only the information, here's how you put it into practice. Here's what you do. Here's what you take home. And so I instruct you, then I can do it alongside of you. And I do, you watch, we talk. Then I do, you help, we talk. And then you do, I help, and we talk. And then you do, I watch, and we talk. And then you find somebody else, and you go get them, and sign them up, and you do, they help, or watch, and you talk. Do you understand what I'm saying? Isn't that just as simple as it can be? We do it whether we're teaching baseball, basketball to the kids. We do it whether we're teaching computer programming. We do it in every area of our life. 
except when it comes to Christianity, and we don't want to mess with anybody. We don't, too many times, we don't want people to even know we're Christians, but even if they do, we don't want them to think we're weird. And so we can be at a coffee shop talking to somebody who's having all kind of issues and all kind of problems and never mention God, who is our life, and never mention Scripture, who God, which God uses to convict us and inform us and to control our life, and never communicate values, never communicate what that means, never tell people of our very reason for existence, and we've got to make sure that we understand that this is our vocation. The biggest problem is too many times we have vacational Christians. You guys like vacations? I, I know you do. I follow you on Facebook. I'm kidding. I, I like vacations. I like vacations. As a matter of fact, you will see pictures of us in a kayak paddling and fishing. All right, that, that's really close to heaven right there, okay? Uh, well, we enjoy the vacations. You know what vacations are? They're getting away from real life, from the day in and day out and the grind of life. And they tend to be temporary, and they tend to be compartmentalized, and, and sometimes you just got to recover from your vacation when you come back to your vocation. Too many times we as Christians are vacational Christians. We'll take our vacation from the world on Sunday morning to come get refreshed and then go back out in the world and leave all that at church. We'll take our vacation on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night or a Sunday night and we'll get with a small group of other believers and we'll look at scriptures, but then we'll go back out to our vocations and we'll leave all that stuff at church. We don't apply it. We don't use it. We don't bring it into our conversation. We don't bring it into our thinking. We aren't meditating on the Word of God, allowing the Word of God to transform our lives. When what we should be doing is we should be vocational Christians above every vocation, whether it's working, raising children at home, whether it's working on the job down the road, whether it is uh, whatever, the ta- whatever your vocation is, whatever your vocation is, your calling, your vocation is to be a disciple maker. And so we need to embrace the role of being a disciple maker, which includes formal and informal structures. What I'm trying to get you to do now is to just look at somebody, find somebody and say, let's spend some time together because there's some things I think that God has taught me that would be a benefit to you and there's some things I know that God has taught you that would be benefit to me. And let's just spend some time together. You know what we say? We say, I can't do it. I'm too busy. I got a job. I got a family. I got duties, and I got responsibilities. And I'm going to tell you that one day, you're going to see the boss who gave you your assignment. And he's going to ask what your progress on that assignment is. And that has to be a priority in your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's got to be a priority in your life. And can I tell you something else? Just You know this. God never commands you to do something that he doesn't make a way for you to do it. God never commands you to do something that he doesn't make a way for you to do it. And so it may be that as you are working a secular job, you can share with people how Christ has changed your life, and you can establish those relationships in that way. It may be that he adds something to your schedule. It may be that he takes away things from your schedule in order for you to be able to do this. But trust me, what God calls you to do, he gives you the wisdom and the ability and all that you need in order to be able to do it. I have an excursus. You guys know what an excursus is? It's a paragraph in the sermon. It's a sermonette in a sermon. And it's about four pages long, so I'm not going to do it. 
I may just turn it into another sermon. But not today. But can I tell you one thing? From this excursus, what you need to be teaching people is what you have learned about what God says. What we need to be teaching people is the Word of God. Not philosophy. Not, I don't know who's popular now. Oprah, Dr. Oz, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm out of, of that. Uh, you need to be teaching people directly from the Word of God and are from people who teach and write directly from the Word of God. Does that make sense? There's your basis. That, that's, our, that's our curriculum. And that's the excursus. So we make disciples. That's what Paul says. He, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that which you have learned of me, by the way, he's talking about what God had taught him and what he is teaching the church. It's the scripture that he is writing. That which you have learned of me in the presence of many witnesses, the same, <coughs> you teach that same thing to faithful men who will in turn teach others also. You see the generations how disciples are made. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others also. And he calls him my son. This is a, a great relationship. My child, my son. That what you've learned of me in the presence of many witnesses. The same commit thou to faithful men who will in turn teach others also. And, and we think, all right, I'm embracing the role of discipling. I'm going to take the things I have learned of the word of God. I'm going to teach it to others also. And, and God's going to bless it and it's going to be great. What is the very next phrase? Share in what? Sharing the suffering, that's the second point on your outline. When you say, Father, I'm embracing my role as a disciple maker, you need to recognize that there's a cost involved, and you need to commit to the cost of making disciples. It's going to cost you. You guys know the next three verses, right? The, the, the ones that come after this? <clears throat> Actually, that's, that's a one and two. You guys know the three illustrations, I guess, the three analogies that Paul uses, first of a soldier, then of an athlete, and then of a farmer. We're very familiar with them. We've used them a lot. We've talked about them a lot in the context of a Christian life. But context is king. What is the context here? Make disciples. That what you've learned of me is the same commit that of faithful men who will in turn teach others also. And so, in so doing, suffer. Ha. Share in the suffering as a good soldier. I want to open that text. Matter of fact, can we just leave that text up on the screen for a while? With uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, let's pick up with verse uh, 3 and go through 6. And we're just going to leave that up on the screen for a while. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. We've got three analogies here. Uh, three, three metaphors, if you will. Three examples. Um, Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civil civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And an athlete is not crowned. So we've got a soldier now, an athlete, who's not crowned. He doesn't get his trophy unless he competes according to the rules. And then number six, and it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And then he goes in verse 7, which is not included in the text. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Which is outstanding truth. But here's what I want us to see, that there is a cost in making disciples. By the way, you need to write this down if you're a note taker. Uh, there's no discipleship without a relationship. 
There's no discipleship without a relationship. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was once called the greatest preacher of his day, certainly of his day, one of the greatest preachers of his day. And this was in England a couple of centuries ago, a couple hundred years ago. And he preached to thousands on Sunday, and somebody called him about making disciples. As he was teaching to his class on young pastors, he said, you need to personally have a relationship with people that you're investing in their lives. And he told them, and and this was written down in lectures to my students if you want to look it up. He says, you can't make disciples from the pulpit effectively. And he had two empty bottles and a bucket full of water. And he said, I want to fill these bottles. And so he sat the bottles out, stood back, and threw the bucket of water at the bottles. And then he asked them to check how much water actually made it into the bottles. And, of course, there was just a little bit. Some of it just got on the outside. He said, that is how, making disciples from the pulpit. What is the best way to take one bottle and fill the other? And he took one bottle, another couple of bottles, and he stopped and filled it one at a time. Here's the difference. You know the churches that are healthy, the churches that reach the world with the gospel and have a global impact, are the ones where you sit on the pew and say, my job is to make a disciple. One relationship at a time, one conversation at a time, one class at a time, one structure at a time. That's my job. And you embrace that job and you're empowered to pay the cost. Now, I will tell you, wow. I will tell you it's a very frustrating task. You guys know people are messy, right? Have I lost you yet? Hey, you guys know people are messy, right? Was Paul a good disciple maker? He was a great disciple maker. Did all of his disciples make it? Read 2 Timothy. In chapter 1, he mentions two who fell by the wayside. And then he said, all of Asia has departed me. In chapter 3, he mentions two of his disciples who are pretty good in some areas, but now they're teaching stuff that's just not true. And they're staying in the church, but they're leading the church away. And then in chapter 4, he's got a whole other list of people. You remember the name Demas? He says, Timothy, come to me quickly. This is the last letter Paul wrote before he died. Last letter we have extant of Paul's writing in Scripture, looking back at a life of disciples, and he's naming names of people who started and who dropped out. Of people that he invested his life in and they didn't make it. It's going to be frustrating. But then look at the names of the people who radically were radically transformed, who were used by God in great ways. Look at Timothy, who this letter is written to. Guide this truth that is in your heart. Protect yourself from this. Be an example to the saints. Look at Timothy. Look at Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 7. Be an example. As I was an example to you, you be an example. Again and again and again we see this, this call. And let me just mention a couple of things more real quick. And this is about half the sermon, so I'm not sure that we're going to... We may pick this up next week because this is a vital thing, okay? It's so important that we embrace this. First of all, if we just get the first point, it's a win, right? Recognize your role to be a disciple maker because then it's just figuring out how to do it, and the Bible tells us. So we we can do that. But the second thing is I don't want you to go into this blind. This is not a bait and switch. There's a cost to disciple making. You're going to be uh, disappointed. You're even going to be hurt. You're going to be accused of things that you 
that, that you're not guilty of and wrong motivations, and so you have to keep yourself clear. But you know the biggest reason most people don't make disciples? They don't feel qualified. Didn't Paul tell Timothy, that which I've, you've learned of me, commit to faithful men? And you say, well, as a Christian, you know, I'm a I'm B plus. I need to wait till I'm an A plus Christian before I can actually make a disciple. True or false? False. You start where you are. You start where you are. But I do want you to know that if you really want to learn something, teach it. If you really want to learn something, teach it. You're not motivated. You don't, you don't, you're not, you, it, it increases your motivation. It increases your passion. It increases your desire for the things that you're studying when you are the one that's responsible to convey it to someone else. Luke chapter 6. Let's see if we can get this on the screen. And I don't think I told you that it was coming. But Luke chapter 6. Um, s- somewhere around verse 42. No, 39. We'll start in verse 39. Luke chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 39. Jesus is teaching, and he's talking, and he told him a parable. He said, hey, can the blind lead the blind? Won't they both fall into a ditch or into a pit? The disciple is not above his master or teacher, But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And he goes on to tell them, here's your problem. You're trying to fulfill a role you're not qualified to fill because you've not addressed the issues in your own life. You're trying to take a speck out of somebody else's eye when you've got a log in your own. You know what being a discipler does? It raises the bar on your walk with Christ. You're to be an example. There's no disciple making by do what I say, not what I do. You understand that, right? That is not a biblical principle. There's no disciple-making by do what I say, not what I do. Biblical discipling is what Paul said repeatedly. It's what we see in other passages in Scripture where they say, as I follow Christ, you follow me. Follow my example. Do this again and again. 1 Thessalonians, by the way, I'm going to go ahead and close this message out. But you need to read the application questions and look up those passages of Scripture and think about the ways, the examples that we have to invest in the lives of somebody else. So here's a very simple question. Who knows God better today because of the time you've spent with them in the last six months? Last three months? Last two months? Are we really willing to embrace our role as a disciple maker? I'm going to give you one example, and then we're going to close. I've got a friend who struggles with his prayer life. Just struggles with his prayer life. I mean, he knows how to pray. He knows the P-R-A-Y that we teach here. You know, praise, repentance, ask and yield. He knows the principles of prayer, but when it comes to how much did you pray today, the answer is I. (laughs) I prayed for God to keep my family safe, and that's about the extent of my prayers. That's not a prayer life. And so we have started spending some time together. And you know what we do? We pray. We'll open the Bible to Luke chapter 18 or to Matthew chapter 6 where the disciples said, teach me to pray. And we'll just look at a portion of that prayer. And I will pray. And then I will look at him and make him look at me and say, your turn. God's here. He's listening. 
your turn. You pray. And I'm going to listen and just pray along with you. And the first few times we did that, <laughs> it was awkward. You guys ever been in an awkward situation? I don't. I, and it was stumbling and it was struggling. And then we just continue to pray. I'll pray. You pray. I'll pray. You pray. I'll pray. You pray. Scott's just got a resource from us for us that we're going to make available to people called Praying the Scriptures. It is a fantastic resource. And you know what I want you to do? I want you to get it and start doing it, and then I want you to start taking somebody else through it. If we want to see God use you and me to make a difference in the West End and the world, we've got to be people who pray and who pray the truth of God's Word and frankly, people who pray together. Wouldn't that be great? No. Won't that be great? The call is to make disciples. Embrace the call. Count the cost. There is a reward. You want to know what it is? Come back next week. I'm aware of the time. I really am. But the Bible lists three rewards in those verses verses that, that we're looking at of the soldier of the athlete and of the farmer that we'll explore as we go a little bit deeper into this message next week i surrender all i surrender all we sang it just a minute ago are you willing to embrace your role as a disciple maker i am i am you can and there's a great reward when we do Father, thank you for the examples that we have in Scripture and for the clear commands of Scripture that you give us a task and a role to do that our Christianity is not about meeting our own needs and not about making sure that we're full and we have plenty to eat. Our Christianity is about glorifying you as we invest our lives in others with the aim of seeing them become increasingly devoted followers of Christ. We say it in our mission, making mature disciples of all nations. All people, the people that you bring to us, the people that you send us to, all people. Starting in the West End, but certainly starting in our homes, starting in our workplaces, starting in the people that we already have a relationship with. Help us to look around and invite someone into our lives. I thank you for the people who are already doing that, who are already doing that in this context and in this church. And I pray that their number will increase for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.